Joseph, and this is prologue to Revelation, and the uh, pastors of the church were foolhardy enough to let me stand up here and talk to y'all for a few weeks, and uh, let's just go ahead and start with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that you are great and that you are good. We recognize your awesome power. We recognize that you're sovereign and that uh, nothing takes you by surprise. And everything is from you and for you and through you. For your praise and glory. So Lord, I pray that tonight, I pray tonight you'd be magnified, that we would see you in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd open up this part of the Bible that for so many is sort of closed off or just just something that they don't that they put off until later. So, Father, I pray you open it to them. Pray that through your Spirit, you would work in us to see how it is that you're commanding us to walk in these days. How it is that you're speaking to us through your Spirit, through your Word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a little bit about me. Uh, we'll start off with I'm kind of a nerd, and uh, so I read a lot. That's kind of my deal. And I've been going to college for a really long time. And yeah, so yeah, so what would take other people short amounts of time takes me a long time. And now I'm a teacher. So that's that's sort of a little about about me. Once again, my name is Todd, and my wife. Lovely wife is Marla, and she's looking embarrassed at the moment. That's okay. And uh, so we've been coming here about a year. And a few months back, as I mentioned in front of the church a few weeks ago, that I was approached and asked if I might be interested in, in teaching a book of the Bible evening class and that it would have to be sort of compact and fit into just a few weeks and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, that cuts out all of them except for like Jonah and Philemon and you know that really narrows down the scope and then started thinking and Pastor Jerry and I were talking one day and and just we were kind of back and forth and I thought hey this would be really cool to do the opening part of the revelation that'd be that'd be a really that would be a really good thing it's something that as far as books of the Bible, as far as when we, when we sit down as Christians and start reading through the Bible, it's really not the first one we turn to usually, but it's in there, and you might be surprised how much of what we say about heaven, how much of what we say about Jesus, how much of what we say about kind of the purpose of the church comes out of the book of Revelation, if you think about how many hymns or praise songs, I think we sang like two or three today that had entire sentences from the book of Revelation. So if you think about that, how much it affects what we think uh, and what we understand about the gospel and about Jesus and about the work of the church, it really is something that, that is a, it's a beautiful work. And I've, I've read in some books that it's sort of like kind of like the crowning jewel of the New Testament, but we kind of, it's its real common, I know, for a long part of my, my Christian walk to just sort of, just, just kind of wipe it out, like put my thumb over it, kind of pretend it's not there, read all the other stuff, kind of go, I don't know what's going on with that, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to go over here. So my prayer, the expectation, the thing uh, I would love to see out of this is just to be able to open that up a little bit, open it up for for you all, so that you come back to it the next time you read it, and you go, "Hey, this is not this is not some strange isolated book that just happens to be stuffed on the end of the Bible for a reason that I don't understand." But instead, it's something that's open to you, that it has meaning and value, that it speaks to you, and that the Lord is able to communicate to you through it. 
So a little disclaimer. I could say a lot of stuff. Once again, I'll go back to I'm kind of a big nerd. So I could say a lot of stuff about even the first three chapters. And so as much stuff and as many notes and as things as I've read, it would be just a jumbled mess. So I cut out you know, about 75% of it, and it's now a smaller jumbled mess. I will try to communicate what, as much as I can in as the least messy way as possible, as, as I feel like I can. If you think that I've skipped something that is important, or I just kind of rode right past something that really speaks to you, you are probably right. That will probably happen at one point or another over the next few weeks. But if so, come back and talk to me, and maybe we, we can always step back the next week, and I can say, hey, I rode right over this thing, and someone said that uh, that might be use, worth speaking about, and so we, we can do that. Also, that good, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people who believe the Bible and take it seriously disagree passionately, sincerely, and intelligently about things that are written in the book of the Revelation. And so I don't claim to be able to unfold all of those things. Uh, uh, I'm not going to answer all of your questions if you came here like, Hey, Todd, why don't you write it out in a chart and explain it all to me and give me what everything is about. That isn't going to happen here in the next month. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But we'll talk about goals here in a minute, but it's my goal, my, my prayer, that some of those themes and images and some of those things that stick out in the first few chapters, that, that I can show you that they're repeated in the rest of the book. And these opening chapters, while they're sort of a contained unit, they're not isolated from the rest of the book, that they're actually part of the rest of the text of the Revelation. And those themes that, that are developed in the first few chapters find repetition throughout the rest of the work. That's, that's how we're going to start it off. All right, so let's read some of this. Let's, it's supposed to be a Bible study. We'll read some Bible to start off before I speak for too long. So Revelation chapter 1 We'll go 1 through 11, and I'm reading through the ESV, which is clearly the inspired translation. That was a joke. Uh, so beginning in verse 1, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. All right, so that's how he starts it off, and it seems pretty straightforward, and from there on, it seems less straightforward. That's the, that's the easy part, but there's lots that's going on there, so that's the, pri that's the primary focus of tonight's discussion. So let me talk to you about a few goals that I had. I mentioned some of them, but just to go over. First thing is I would love for us to be able to walk out of here and say, be able to say, what is the revelation about? If someone can ask you, so what is that book about? You could give a short answer. This is what it's about. 
So what, how does it relate to the rest of the Bible? And what does it say, what does it have to say about Christian living? Seems like a pretty good thing to be able to, that's what we want to do with most of our Bible, right? What's it about? How does it relate to the rest of the Bible? And what does it say about Christian living? Pretty straightforward things. There are a few assumptions, popular assumptions, that I'd like us to kind of deal with and perhaps dispel some misconceptions that sometimes people act as though the revelation is separate from the rest of the New Testament. I mentioned that, that we kind of, you know, a lot of people are just like, so New Testament makes sense, makes sense, and then there's this thing and we're like, what is going on with that? What happened there? Well, it's the end of my Bible reading plan, thank goodness. But is that really what, is it really disconnected? A lot of Christians approach Revelation as though John sat down one day and decided, I'm going to write a theological treatise on eschatology and then dissect it in certain ways to try to uh, understand the consummation of the age. I'll be careful about that, how I say that. The, the consummation of the age, the return of Jesus, as though that was all that this book was about or what it was supposed to be for, as though John were just trying to set up a roadmap so that if you see X, Y, and Z, then you know this equals that in a certain day Jesus will be back, and so pack your bags, you know, sell all your stuff, whatever. But really, was that what he was doing? The fact that John calls it a book of prophecy repeatedly encourages, in many minds, a futurist assumption that everything John is talking about, say, past chapter 3, is all about sometime in the future that prophecy is like lobbing a, a rock out into the future to hit a certain point in time, and bam, and when it hits it, that's all it's about. That I'm, I'm throwing a stone somewhere forward in the future, and it doesn't have to do with me right here or right now, or anything in between. It's, I'm just throwing this rock, and it'll eventually land somewhere, and where it lands, that's what it was about. But is that really what biblical prophecy is? So I'm just sort of asking that for a few weeks, we, we suspend some of those assumptions that we... we not that we dispel them, or not that we necessarily write them all off as completely inappropriate, but we just kind of hold them in suspense for a little bit. So what I want to do, like I said, is introduce some of those uh, symbols, images, and terms that are going to be repeated throughout the Revelation. Talk about, as we're reading through these first couple of chapters, and most of us have read that at least once or twice, Jesus makes a lot of promises about those who overcome, if you hold fast to my word, if you, if you stand to the end, I will do X, Y, and Z. He makes a lot of promises. He also makes a lot of negative promises. If you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand, I will throw you on a bed of sickness, I will kill all your children. Things like that. The less, the less friendly side of what would Jesus do? Apparently, sometimes he'd kill your children. So those sorts of, we'll call them uh, warnings of judgment. So there are... Both sides of, uh, of those sorts of things and that they appear in, in the early parts of the Revelation and, and they recur throughout the later part of the book. So my uh, goal is to sort of connect some of those early dots with later dots. And also to draw those connections between what the Revelation says and other parts of the New Testament to make that relationship a little more clear between John's theology of Jesus, John's theology of the end times, John's theology of salvation, and what Paul says through the epistles, what John says in earlier works, what other authors in the New Testament point out, that there are direct connections that can be drawn. And we can see that John wasn't just really dehydrated, hanging out. I mean, he may have been really dehydrated, but that wasn't the reason why he wrote what he wrote, that he wasn't just off doing his own thing in some disconnected manner, seeing things. And my last and I think namely most important goal that's connected to all the others is that we'll grow our, our view of Jesus as he is now. One of the things that struck me, I'll just share with you up front. As I've read this, I know for most of my Christian walk, I thought, I think of, when I think, when someone says Jesus, I imagine 
you know, long hair, beard, kind of skinny guy with a robe, uh, dirty, walking around in the desert with a group of hangers on, that sort of, that sort of saying things that really confuses people other times, showing religious people what's up, that sort of guy wandering around, right? That's, that's what I see, that, that Jesus in the Gospels picture. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right? That's appropriate for all of us to have that view and to see him that way. But that's not all he is. And the book of the Revelation gives us that view of Jesus that those very select few had on the Mount of Transfiguration. That view of Jesus glorified, resurrected, king, sovereign, the one who is already one, runs the whole show, invincible, unstoppable. The enemies of Jesus, they're... Not only are they not in his league, they're not even playing the same sport. That's the book of the Revelation, Jesus. And so I've been really encouraged as I read this that, that it is important for believers to see that Jesus is not just this teacher, sufferer, servant. He's also king, lord, sovereign, ruler. He's all those and. And, uh, and when you look at the Revelation, you go, wow, he's big. Part of that is, as we're looking at it, we see John break into spontaneous praise, which will be uh, repeated throughout the book of the Revelation. Elders break into spontaneous praise. Angels break into worship. The book of the Revelation is about worshiping God through Christ. I pray that as we look at this together, it grows our affections for Jesus, grows our affections for Christ, increases our view of him. For as, as John said in verse 5 of chapter 1, for the one who loves us and set us free from our sins. So I'll do a little I'll step back from that. So those are the goals, just to repeat. Familiarization, maybe dispel a few misconceptions, introduce a few of the themes, and grow our affections for Christ. So here's where the nerd part comes out of me. The really nerdy part. So let me let me talk about hermeneutics for a second. So hermeneutics is that cool, fancy, Englishy version of Greek that means how we go about interpreting something we read. Every time each one of us reads something, we bring a bag of tools that we have in our mind about the way we take those words and then turn them into meaning. We have a bag of tools. Whether we think about them or not, we all use them. I'm just going to make explicit to you some of my bag of tools, some of my tools in my bag. So one is I assume that the book of the Revelation is inspired, inspired by God. And I have a specific meaning in mind that God so sovereignly ordained the circumstances of the Apostle John's life that when it came time for him to write the book of Revelation, he wrote naturally out of who he was and what he had experienced in his life and all the things that he had seen his done, his language, what he had read, the people he had interacted with, but in such a way that God had sovereignly superintended those experiences that when it came out of him, it was exactly what God wanted. Okay? All right. And uh, following on that, if God, if it's exactly what God wanted, that means there are no mistakes in it. So it's inerrant. We like to talk about inerrancy sometimes. So that's all it means is if God inspired exactly what John wrote when he wrote it, then it means there are no mistakes in it. Everything he said actually happened. Everything he says is true. Everything he tells us is correct in this text. And we can trust it. We can rely on it. We can depend on it. There are historical considerations that I take into that, one, my assumption is John actually saw something, right? It's not like John said, man, I will come up with a real zinger. I will write this one, and they will talk about this one for centuries. That is not what he, I don't think that's what he did. I do not assume that John thought, sat down and thought, I'll come up with something that will baffle them. So he actually saw something. Something actually occurred in history. There was a man, John. He was in a place. He did see something. He wrote down what he saw. Not only did he write down what he saw, he wrote it to real people. He wrote it to an audience. He intended them to have a response to it. He intended to inform them of something. He intended that it would mean something to them. 
so that when we read this, my assumption is John expects people who read this to get something out of it other than, I don't know what's happening here, right? <laughs> I, I think that's a sensible expectation that when you write somebody uh, something, you expect them to kind of get what you're saying. He wrote it to real people that he wrote it in the midst of uh, particular and largely identifiable social, political, historical circumstances. That he was he lived in a real world with real goings on, with a real cultural background, with real history and religious context. That for the most part we can we can identify, and that those those have something to say about what he wrote and what he was thinking. Because like I said, if inspiration means that God works and sovereignly superintends the circumstances of his life so that his experiences result in writing exactly what God wants, then his experiences and circumstances can help us understand what God wanted to convey through him. If, does that make sense to everyone? See what I'm saying here? I know it's, it's a little less messy in my head. All right, and... That one of the reasons why this is important is there are, whether or not you will encounter it, there are lots of critics and people who will talk about aspects of the book of Revelation as though John was solely writing what he wrote in the book of the Revelation as though he was personally responding to something that took place. So, John writes about X, Y, or Z in his vision because he knew that there was a certain amount or certain type of persecution coming down the pike. Now, that may be true. That may help us understand what the text means. But is that why John wrote it? Or did John write it because that's what he saw and Jesus told him to write it? So there's a bit of a difference if, if you can follow me, there's a bit of a difference there. One assumption is that John is writing something based on his own motives. Another one is John is writing something because he had a visionary experience and Jesus and an angel told him, write down exactly what you saw, and that's what he did. So they're a little bit distinct. There's also genre issues. When John writes what he's writing... He's not writing in a vacuum. There are ways of writing. There are forms of literature. He writes certain types in a certain form. He writes what he sends is in a certain form. And that form helps us understand what's inside. So if I send you a text message, uh, smiley faces and whatever else and capital U's for Y-O-U and all that. They make some sense. We understand that within a certain context, now I don't do that because I'm better than that, but in a certain context, right, those things are acceptable. But if a student turns in a, an essay, a semester essay to a college professor and there are smiley faces and used for Y-O-U and things like that, that's not acceptable, right? That doesn't match up with the format that the professor is expecting that student to write in. Everyone see what I'm saying? So there are, there are genres, there are formats, there are styles of writing within which different societies and cultures operate when they write. And so there are both expectations that are formed when someone uses a particular format of writing, a particular genre, and there are expectations that are then broken. That affects the way we read certain things. So that'll come up some more. We have to admit that there's a certain amount of what people call exegetical certainty. So, sorry, ex, I'm going to say this wrong again. Exegesis exegetical certainty. Yes, good, got it. So, exegetical certainty. That there are some parts of the Bible that are more accessible, more clear, more specific than other parts. So, I'll give you one, a good example that I love. So, Exodus 20.13, do not murder. Pretty straightforward. Very accessible to most of us. We, we think we got a pretty good grip on what that means. Now, there may be things that flow out of that, but generally, we got a pretty good grip on what that's trying to say to us. Do not murder. However, Mark 9, 49, everyone will be salted with fire. 
maybe a little less accessible, a little less clear what Jesus is trying to say to his audience there. Maybe take some digging. Everyone will be salted with fire. I don't really know what he's saying until I go digging a bit. Maybe compare a few things, see what was going on in the other passages. Maybe what fire and salt have to do. You know, you have to do a little legwork to arrive at some sort of, Jesus, what are you saying? Hey, okay, so let's admit that certain parts are more accessible, other parts are less accessible, but our response ought to be let's push in, not let's back away. So when we see these parts where there are there's some difficulty when you get a little bit of, say, pushback from the Bible, it's okay to admit, I don't know what's going on on first reading. That's all right. But God gave this to us for some purpose, so let's lean into it. A little bit. While admitting, maybe we can only lean in so far right now. Maybe there's only so much evidence that we have. And, of course, other considerations come into that, that there's distance between time and cultures and language. There's a little language barrier there. That the Bible, New Testament, was written in Greek. And the Revelation, John does some funny things with Greek to begin with. So those are my some of the tools that I bring in my bag when I think about it, when I come to read it, just to, just to review what some of them are, that it's inspired, so it's inerrant, and it's consistent with the rest of Scripture, that it's historical. John actually saw something. He wrote to an audience where he intended them to get what he was saying, that there is there's a situation that he write, writes out of, which means that there's a genre, literary genre, that creates expectations and or breaks expectations, that he had an intention when he wrote this, that John wanted to communicate something to his audience, and that we have to admit that some parts are a little more exegetically difficult or certain, that we can, we can grab and grab tight, and other parts we grab a little loose, and then lean in and pray that God, God gives us something out of it. Okay. I have in my notes, pause for questions. So I'm going to pause for questions. You're like, you haven't talked really about the book of the Revelation yet, so I've got no questions. Yeah, <laughs> Pastor. Can you explain the premillennial or postmillennial? <laughs> I will direct you to our pastoral staff. <laughs> who are gifted, gifted teachers of the Bible, and will help you unravel that concern. <laughs> Bouncer. <laughs> yes. Um, I have more of a, more of a statement than a question. Okay. It just occurred to me a few months ago that this is uh, what Jesus is doing with these letters. The church is like a business form letter. Mm, mm-hmm. The structure is very similar for each letter. Good, good, yes. Yep. And we will find out soon has s- similar structures to other letters. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Any other questions? All right. Then I shall continue on. Okay. So what's going on in this opening chapter? Let me take a sip of water and then I'll answer that question. Or at least give it an attempt. So in chapter 1, we see that John 1 sets up what he's going to talk about through the whole thing. He tells us what this book is, what what it's about, who wrote it, what happened, how he got it. Um, I would like to say when it happened, but that's a great matter of contention. Because he doesn't actually tell us when it happened, and we'll get to that. And overall, what's the whole purpose of the book of Revelation? And he, he either hints or unpacks all of those pieces of information right up front in chapter 1. So we'll go ahead, and this is in no particular order. So if you're one of those linear sort of people and think, I'm just going to go right down the verses, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm going to be kind of shooting around. So the first part is that I think he answers, and this is the linear part of this discussion, right in Revelation 1.1, he tells us what this is, which is, it's an, is a revelation. 
In Greek, that's apocalypsis, which is why the book is sometimes called the apocalypse. And all that means is an unveiling or an uncovering, a disclosure. So it's a, it's a disclosure, an unveiling. And next thing he says is, of Jesus Christ. So that of Jesus Christ can be taken in a couple of ways. And it may be that uh, John intended it to be both ways. So one, the book is a revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that it reveals Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's doing right now, what he's going to do, what's happening, what, what is he doing up in heaven, what's going on, what has he done for us, how is how is this all worked out? It describes Jesus from beginning to end. It describes his supremacy, his victory, his lordship, and his return. But that it's a revelation of Jesus also can mean that it is Jesus' revelation, as in Jesus possesses this revelation. Because it says, you'll see in the middle part of verse 1, that it is the revelation that God gave to him. God gave, God the Father, gave the storyline of history to Jesus. He put it, as Jesus would say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And when he says that judgment has been given to me. And all those, all those sorts of, when he was walking around on earth, he's saying, the Father put all things in my hands. And then the Apostle Paul will say things like, he sustains all things. God gave the storyline of history, the Father, God the Father gave it to his son Jesus. The Father made known to the Son the full plan of history so that the Son, we see, moving a little bit along in that verse, so that the Son might disclose it to his many bondservants. I'll translate it bondservants. It's the same word that Darren was talking about today in the service. Um, doulois, slaves. So that Jesus, the Son of God, might make known what's going on in the universe to those people he has purchased and he commands. What's going on? That's what's going on. That's what this book is. It's what is going on in the universe. Well, the Father gave this to the Son. The Son says, all right, let's send it on down so that the people can know. That means that the intended audience is the church, the people of Jesus Christ. Although some people will believe that somehow this book is supposed to be a warning to non-believers, if you read it, the whole thing is actually written to and for people who claim to be followers of Jesus, so they can understand what's going on. And we'll return to that a little bit farther. So as we look further, a lot of people will understand why a lot of people in popular culture will say that this is apocalyptic literature. So apocalyptic literature is this, once again, genre, form, style of book or writing that was real popular in Jewish circles from about 200 B.C. to about 2 or 300 A.D. And basically, the, the rough edges of it are a God-fearing person, usually a famous, like it would be uh, pseudo-epigraphical, it'd have uh, the name of someone to make it sound cool, but it wasn't really written by that person, so let's say... I'll write a book, and I'll say it's David's Apocalypse, and I'll call myself David, but I'm not King David. But I'll call myself King David to make it sound really meaningful, that sort of thing. Okay, So there, those sorts of writings proliferated. Uh, one, one really fulsome one that we still have is, I believe it's 2nd Esdras. It's supposed to be by Ezra from the, second, from the return of the exile, and it's supposed to be this grand vision of the coming of the Messiah and the and the consummation of the age and all of that. So that's one of the that's one of the main edges of it is that it's supposed to be this visionary experience about the consummation of the age, usually messianic in focus, and that it's usually mediated somehow by an angel. That an angel shows up and says, "Hey, you look down in the dumps about this whole." Romans stomping on you thing. Let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. Ta-da, it's going to be awesome one day. The bad guys will get theirs. The good guys will be rewarded. Israel will be great. And the son of David will sit on his throne. Rough edges. Okay. 
So that's apocalyptic literature. So if you read Revelation, it makes sense when a lot of people will put it into that category. Because it, in a lot of ways, fits those, fits those sort of pieces. Those pieces sort of fit. But that's an incomplete view of the book. Because that's not all that's going on. So if we look, and this coming back to the epistolary form that was mentioned earlier, if you look in verses 4 through 9, John is making it clear that actually this entire book is one giant letter. It's one giant epistle. Let's, let me flip back and point to the relevant things. So look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Sounds a lot like he's writing a letter. If we were to flip to Romans 1 and verse 1, it starts out with Paul, dot, 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 to those in Rome, dot, dot, dot. Or if we were to flip over to James 1, James, a servant of God, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, in the diaspora. Or Jude 1 through 2, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, dot, 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 to those who are called. Everyone see what I'm... Epistolary format. John is writing a giant letter. The whole thing is one gigantic epistle written to the seven churches. And not only that, but we see it continues on as with the other part that he says, grace to you, grace and peace to you from yada, yada, yada. So if we went back to all those three passages I mentioned before, Paul tells the Romans, grace to you and peace from God our Father. James says, uh, greetings, just greetings, which is in Greek, it's like a very similar, grace is charin and, and greetings is like haras. It's just a vowel different nerd. Okay, so and uh, to those who are called and kept, uh, James uh, finishes off his introduction, may mercy and peace and love be multi. So same format. Hi, this is who I am. This is to whom I'm writing. And let me well wish you. Everyone see what's going on there? Same idea in the Revelation. I'm John, here's to whom I'm writing, and I wish you grace and peace from God in some title or another. So, yes, it's apocalyptic, but it's a giant epistle. The whole thing is a letter. And we find that, flip all the way to the back, this is confirmed for us, because who's... Who sends a letter, writes a long letter, and doesn't say goodbye at the end? That would be rude. But John is not rude. Chapter 22, verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. He signs off very similar to any of the other apostles in their epistles. Grace and mercy to you. All these people who are hanging out with me send you greetings, and Lord be with you. Similar. John doesn't break the epistolary format, or let's just say he encloses the whole book of the Revelation in this giant letter format. He tells us what it is, and then he goes into epistolary format in the beginning. But it gets more complicated than that, just slightly more complicated, because John repeatedly refers to the book of the Revelation as a book of prophecy. In 1 3, 1 19, I'm sorry, 1 3, 19, 10, 22, 7, 10, 18, and 19, and a, few, a couple of the times, that's the angel actually calling it a book of prophecy and not just John. So it's a book of prophecy. What do we say about all this? Well, it will help us to understand if we're going to read something and appreciate it rightly. Like we said, what sort of format is it? What style is it? What genre is it written in? Otherwise, we're going to get mad when someone sends us a smiley face and writes you. We might do that anyhow when someone texts us. <laughs> but at least we understand why they're doing it. Right? It makes sense. So the same thing with the book of the Bible. When you read it, you want to understand why it is they're communicating in the way that they're communicating. Prophecy is what's going on and is the main thrust and a heightened form of prophecy, this apocalyptic branch of prophecy. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that. But in particular, 
one of the things that stands out and it's important for the reader to get, and John gives it to us right up front in this, in this opening section, is that a lot of the language is going to be symbolic and must be explained. How does he do that? Well, there are lampstands. Jesus is standing around in lampstands when he sees them. You read down uh, further in chapter 1. He's holding stars. When John turns around and, and, and sees him, when he describes him, and we'll talk about this more next week, but looking specifically at the end of that, in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So unless we believe that Jesus is standing around in heaven, you know, hanging out like this, sort of sword protruding from mouth, we have to understand that there's a lot of symbolic imagery. And in fact, we know that because in the following passages, Jesus begins to unpack it for him. Right? He tells him what the lampstands and the stars are. So right up front, we've got to understand that there's a lot of symbolism going on, that it's prophetic in the idea that it... It's talking about what's going on in history, what God is doing. He's revealing what's behind the scenes, like drawing the curtain back so that, so that we can see this. Hey, that was a good unintended segue. Because not only is he drawing the curtain back so we can see this, we understand, as you read through it, probably the closest thing we understand to most likely what John experienced would, unless you've had one of these visionary experiences, is something like a movie where you can also hear the thoughts of the people, the characters in the movie. As John relates this, he's seeing this, this he's seeing things. This, this vision is being mediated to him through an angel, he tells us. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's verse 2, he tells us that... Looking back over, yep, uh, end of verse 1, and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, right? So this vision is being mediated to John through an angel on some level, and so he's getting this movie where he can actually hear and sense what people are thinking and their feelings and, and, uh, and, and see it at the same time. It's really... Uh, symbolic, I guess is what I'm looking for. So there's a lot of symbolism that has to be un unpacked. It's that sort of prophecy. So when we ask the question, when someone asks the question, what is the book of Revelation in respect to its form or genre, we have to say that it's a mixed. It's a big epistle, and inside is a book of prophecy with heightened apocalyptic scenes. So that when we come to look at it, we don't expect it to read like, say, uh, Romans. And most of us don't anyhow, right? Quite naturally, we look at it, and none of us, very few of us, I think, would treat it like the letter to the Romans, but just so that we're all clear on, on what we're looking at, what's going on. I will pause for questions again, because I'm supposed to pause for questions. I got a sure. Have you ever had a vision? Yes. I will tell you what happened. A, uh, a friend of mine and I were praying once, and he was going through a tough time about something. And he asked me to ask the Lord for a word, and so we prayed. And as I sat there, I was wide awake, and as I sat there praying, all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, there was a movie of a green field of grass and a tower-like cylinder thing, like... Like you would think, think castle, one of those towers on the end of a castle that was made on a really nice brick. And then all of a sudden as I was watching, it got really old and kind of turned into um, red brick instead of the nice stone mason work. And it began to crumble and it broke and fell over. And then it began to decay, but then as it was decaying, Vines began to grow up through it and around it and consume it and, and made these really beautiful flowers out of it. Now, I had no idea what it meant. But I told him what I saw, and he thought it was very helpful. And he explained to me that he was part of this ministry, and he had been in kind of a fight with the uh, 
uh, elder and more senior part of the ministerial staff and that uh, he and his wife were thinking about leaving that ministry because they felt like it was uh, not going the way it ought. And so he interpreted it as that God was commending him in the direction that he was going, that yes, the the old structure had gone bad and was and was falling apart and that there was new life to be sought after it was gone, that there was a new direction, that life life for him would grow and bloom out of this experience. So it, made, it made sense to him. It made sense to him, yeah. yeah it made sense. And then once he told me, I went, sure, that sounds good, yeah, <laughs> cool. So... So that's the closest I ever got to it. See, there were no people for me to read their thoughts in the. There were no characters in it that I could also like sense what they were thinking while it was going. I just had. I guess it's because I'm not very good at it, so I'm just kind of. I'm kind of the slow type, so I just get bricks in my visions. They don't think much. Any other questions? Out of curiosity, so it says the church is in Asia, northwest. All right, I got this cool thing off the internet right here because everyone loves pictures. So uh, since you asked, in case you don't know, this is Europe. It's on the other side of a big body. We're like over here somewhere. Well, right about there, right about there. Right, right out there. There we go. Now I got it. Like here, New York, there. Okay. We're over there, and Asia was one of the provinces of what we would call Asia Minor, uh, one of the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. So there, and just to be, all right, so here we go, Asia, all right, and here are the seven churches, and right about there is where John was, uh, uh, was hanging out when all this took place. It, yeah, when you color it that way, it sure does. Looks just like Alaska. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've been to here, and it was not cold. No, Ephesus is a warm place. So was there a reason that he was going clockwise? Or? Uh, there is some discussion about that, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm sorry, what's that? Ephesus? It's inland. There isn't. There's a different city uh, that's mainly a tourist port city. A few. Oh, it's Turkey. Sorry. Yes. Uh huh. This is Western Turkey. Greece is right over here. Macedonia. Yes. Yes. The Greeks thought it was Greece for a very long time. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This was the area of Caria in Greece for a long time. So. Um, all right. So. Any other questions? Always bring a map. That's what I say. Whenever you're teaching Bible class, bring maps. Okay. All right. We'll continue on then. And where did I get to in the up there? Oh, what a great question. Because the next one was, what happened and how did it come about? Oh, no. Skip down. Next is who wrote it. So who wrote it? Um, Well, John names himself four times, three times in in the opening chapter because... Like I said, in this opening chapter, he sets up what are we supposed to think about this, what's going on, uh, what is this work, who who did it, what took place. So John names himself uh, in this. But he doesn't say, I'm John, the guy who wrote the book of John. You might remember me. I was the young guy sitting next to Jesus in that painting. <laughs> he doesn't say that in the book of Revelation. So there is some academic scholarly debate about whether or not it's the same John who wrote the book of the Revelation as the John who wrote the Gospel. The traditional, we'll call it orthodox view, is that they are the same person. And there's plenty of reason to believe that. Plenty of reason to believe that. When I approach it, I believe it's the same person. I'm, I am persuaded by the evidence that it is the same author. Um, and lest we run down that rabbit trail for very long... We're not going to talk too much about that because it becomes a really it becomes a nerd fest discussion at that point. Okay, uh, but if we want to talk about it sometime, let me know. I can geek it up pretty good. So we're going to go with it's John the Apostle, the beloved, 
the same author as the Gospel of John. Now, what happened? Well, according to John in verse 9, uh, he was on the island of Patmos, and uh, history tells us, or church history tells us, that he was there as a punishment. He was not there for a summer vacation in the Greek Isles. It was at that point not nearly as lush as it is now or have nearly as many taverna as there are now. It was essentially a giant rock in the water that uh, people were sent to work on. At one point it had mines. So hammer away prisoner and find us some goodies. And that's all you did your whole life um, once you were sent there. So he was sent there and according to the opening chapter, because of the word of God and his testimony of Jesus Christ, according to what he tells us in the opening, he was there as a matter of persecution. Now that will be important, because as John speaks to these seven churches and to you and me, one of the themes, let me start it off right here, one of the themes is Standing firm and enduring and bearing testimony for Jesus despite the worst types of persecution. And he starts right off letting his readers know that I'm here not because I didn't pay my taxes, not because I ran a red light, not because I was vacationing, but specifically because I stood up for Jesus. That'll put it right up front. And he does it in such a... John's such a loving guy, uh, and he does it in a way that doesn't point the finger. He says, this is why I'm here, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he's there in this giant rock. Some church history says that the, um, the persecution he had suffered previous to being exiled by a, a governor out to this island was because uh, he had previously been punished by being dropped in a, a cauldron of boiling water or oil or something like that, and in his 80s or around 90, because he wouldn't stop preaching Jesus and was really irritating some people. And, and so they dropped him in that and burned him up alive pretty much, and then when he came out, he was still alive. And so thought, what are we going to do with this guy? Well, we'll just send him to Patmos and get rid of him. So John had seen his fair share of suffering for the Lord and as a gentle elder pastor and apostle he communicates that by saying I'm out here on account of the word of God and my testimony of Jesus Christ so he was in the spirit on the Lord's day verses 9 and 10 and it, it reads sort of like maybe Paul's boasting, false boasting in Second Corinthians 12 where he says, I know a person who was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the spirit or bodily, I don't really know, but I know this, I know this guy, wink, wink, who, uh, who got to heaven, wink, wink, I know this guy, I'm not going to say who it is, but we want to brag about who's, who's Jesus friendly, I know this guy. So he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, praying, meditating, don't really know, but he's in the spirit. The Lord is with him. He's comforting him. He's, he's there. And he has this visionary experience that he's both commanded to write down and either while it's happening he's writing. There's, there are ways to read parts of it where it sounds like because at one point he goes to write something and angel says, no, don't write that down. You can't write that down. And he says, okay, well, I won't write that down. And uh, then they continue on. There's some of that, or perhaps after the whole thing, maybe part of his visionary experience was he believed he was writing things, you know, it was, he was seeing himself write it down uh, as part of it. It's not entirely clear, this is one of those exegetical certainty issues, but at some point he writes down exactly what he saw as best as he could communicate it in the way, in the form, and the way that he understood it to have taken place. He writes it down just as Jesus commands him and includes, and as I understand it, verbatim, these seven letters, exactly what Jesus tells him to write. I imagine if you turn around, you're, in, you're on this island, you're, you're very old, you've suffered a lot, you're in the Spirit, the Lord is comforting you with the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden, 
something's going you're going to remember what's said i imagine it's going to stand out as a, an important moment in your life and that jesus commands him to write down certain letters to the churches and he records those so sometimes uh, when people will talk about inspiration and dictation theory i will say well you know we don't really believe in dictation that god just said write this and then write this and write this and i say except for maybe a couple instances and this might be one of them where jesus said write this exactly and this is what goes down in the bible word for word and this i'll just repeat is distinct from john had an axe to grind and so he wrote certain things in a book john actually was told by jesus to write certain things he actually saw certain things and that's why he wrote them that there may have been contemporaneous issues that what he wrote could speak to is very helpful but that is not i don't believe the reason we shouldn't talk like john wrote it because of those things i wrote here outside circumstances may shed light on what john saw but we should be cautious to use those circumstances to explain why john saw or wrote what he did so when did this happen well we don't really know we don't know specifically there's no conclusive proof and where you fall on this will affect your eschatology okay will affect how you use the book of the revelation or interpret it to talk about whether or not there's a rapture whether or not there's a millennial kingdom that's a literal thousand years when that is supposed to be in relation to other events how you understand that plays a role but primarily for one group of people and those are the preterists and i'm not going to go very far with this but preterists it mean the the word means that things have already taken place that it's already happened so preterists interpret a lot of the events of revelation and prophetic events of the end times as basically having taken place already and especially in relationship to the temple and the destruction of the temple and then that falls into postmillennialism and guess what we're not going to do talk about that much more so there are two main views that either the book of revelation was written in the mid 60s or the book of revelation was written in the mid 90s and anything after that we call them liberals okay those are those are liberal scholars the traditional is the mid 90s and for certain reasons of my own i am not compelled to believe in the earlier mid 60s one i understand this is one of those hey friendly intelligent people can disagree about this it will affect how certain things are worked out but i think for this discussion it will affect very little of of how these opening chapters are worked out okay all right and when we come to Ephesus I'll probably hit this point again because I'm standing up here and then Pastor Jerry can argue with me from the back there. Okay. So what's the purpose of the book? The last thing I want to cover for tonight as we look through chapter 1 is what's the purpose of the book? What does John unpack as the purpose? And and I've mentioned it some, but to unpack it ex- explicitly there are several things that John makes clear in this opening chapter that the point of the book of the revelation is one to display Jesus as display Jesus in his exalted state that's a lot of s sounds to display Jesus in his exalted state so we see the description of Jesus in chapter 1 verses 12 through 16 and it reads different from but similar to his transfiguration lots of white lots of shining that sort of stuff really impressive scares some people that sort of thing it's obvious that he's the man in charge and uh if you're writing it down that's in Matthew 17 Mark 9 and Luke 9 the mount of transfiguration so you get a you, John has that view of wow this is what Jesus looks like now i remember what he looked like this is what he looks like now in his exalted state in heaven. It's also a declaration of Jesus's supremacy. Throughout the book, but especially looking in verse 8, John repeating some things that we'll see Jesus say about himself. John sort of 
quoting Jesus, this is one of the reasons why I think after the visionary experience he wrote the book. It was because he, he appears to quote some of the things, pulls them from what Jesus says in other parts. In verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John is declaring that Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's over everything. There's nothing higher or bigger than he is. He also demonstrates the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is the one who stands in the midst of the lampstands. He's the one that makes the revelation known to his bondservants. And he will, and that we'll find out that he's the one who holds all the events of history within his power. As, as you read through the revelation, as it's unpacked, it's all, nothing is escaping. You will find if you read the revelation, read about the dragon how many times he tries to stop the birth of the child or attack his people or kill the woman. And you will find that the book of the Revelation repeatedly says that Satan is a loser. A loser over and over again. That he is nowhere near being able to stop what the Lord God is doing. That Jesus is just blowing his mind at every turn. There's nothing that the enemy can do to thwart what God's plan is. And that's the picture of Jesus. That they're not even playing the same sport. As Colossians 1, 15-18 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now catch this. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Here's a little tie to the Revelation and the rest of the New Testament. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus made all of these things, Satan included. He's a toy to him. And John wants you to see that. Jesus wants you to see that. Satan is a toy to him. I made him, I do what I want with him. I don't know if that excites anyone else. I'm just getting a little, I'm getting, a little oof, I'm getting hot. <laughs> so the other thing he wants to do is challenge the professing church. Right off the bat, verse 3, there's a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. And who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John blesses the people who read it and who hear it. And who keep what is written in it. Sounds very similar to James. Who says, do not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of it also. Another connection to the rest of the New Testament. But this book contains commands that apply specifically to the church of Jesus Christ on earth. He is giving commands and we are ordered to keep them. Otherwise, as we'll find out when Jesus writes to the churches, there are consequences to be paid. Because Jesus runs a pretty tight ship, we'll find out. And as patient and as loving and as forgiving he is, there's a space. And after that... All discipline seems unpleasant at the time, the author of Hebrews says. Right. And it's supposed to invoke worship. So over and over again, we've already mentioned this, the book has worship. John breaks out in a doxology right in the beginning there. verse After verse 5, after he says, this is, I wish you grace and peace from Jesus. And he starts talking about Jesus. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Yes! To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to God, his priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And goes off and just starts thinking about how awesome he is for another verse or two. And this happens repeatedly throughout the book. The purpose of the book. Display Jesus in his exalted state and challenge the professing church. Challenge them 
to keep his commands, to stand strong in the face of persecution. John's already planted that seed. What's going on right up front? And to invoke us to worship. God is about fostering worship among his people. Man, he really likes it when we worship him. And we really need it. And he really deserves it. So John wants us to see that stuff right up front. Okay? And I'll ask if there are any questions again. Yes, Pastor Jerry. Um, does John tell us in the face of persecution that we should fight for our rights? No, I don't believe he does. John does not encourage us to fight for our rights in the face of persecution. Not that I've noticed, anyhow. And I've read it a couple times recently, and I did not notice that verse. Any other questions? Okay, before the child care gets mad at me. there Anything else? Come say hello afterwards. And uh, any other questions? Otherwise, we will see you. I can't remember if it's next week or there's a week off. Okay. After the meeting. Okay, all right. I'll pray to close us, and uh, and then we'll go go be uh, excited about Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for we thank you for giving this revelation to your Son Jesus, that He could bring it down to us, that we could see it, that your servant would be so faithful to wait patiently till it came, and then faithful to write it out that you've sovereignly seen fit, that we'd have it. Lord, I pray that as we read it, it becomes more alive, that we see the praise, we see the worship, we see Jesus large, high, and lifted up. Father, I pray you fill us with your Spirit, that we can walk in this, in this same way, that we can endure like John did in the face of persecution. I pray that we use these times of plenty and ease to grow strong in faith and not waste these days so that when the days of trouble come, we will stand firm for you, Lord. Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for this time and for your gracious love. In Jesus' name, amen.